If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last Sunday, we looked at the story of the rich young ruler who ran up to Jesus, fell on his knees before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And while he called Jesus good teacher, he didn't like what Jesus had to say, and he walked away. After this, the disciples were confused and amazed when Jesus told them how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I think they sort of assumed that the wealthy were already in the kingdom of God. That's, that's why they were wealthy. So he tells them again, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Where is your faith? it's in your riches, then you are not in the kingdom. And he illustrates this by giving us a a ridiculous comparison, because a camel going through the eye of a needle, that can't even possibly happen. Well, yeah, in the same way, a rich person who trusts in his or her riches will not enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. This is a recurring thing we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Mark, and we will see it again today. Evidence that they didn't get it is is found in our next passages. Jesus has told his disciples twice of his coming passion. In chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And then in chapter 9, verse 32, um, again, he took the disciples, or took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him and hand him over to the Gentiles. Actually, I'm reading our passage here in chapter 10. Let me go back to 9.20. 31. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Okay, now our passage today, verse number 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus heading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed him were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Okay. Several things to note. First of all, the location. Um, We're told at the beginning of chapter 10 that Jesus has left Galilee and has come south to the region of Judea. So he's in Judea. Now he is going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a higher elevation. And it is at this point that we have the third time that he foretells his coming passion. There are seven parts to this. If you'll look at it, first of all, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. Secondly, they will condemn him to death. Thirdly, they will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. Fourthly, they will mock him and spit on him. Fifth, they will flog him. Sixth, they will kill him. And then number seven, three days later, he will rise. This is the most detailed of the three foretellings of his coming passion, of what was going to happen. 
In the first, he mentions that he would be condemned to death, that they would kill him, and that he would rise again. In the second telling, he talks about the fact that he would be betrayed uh, by the chief priests and teachers of the law, that he would be killed, and that he would rise from the dead. Interestingly, what we find in all three accounts are two things. First of all, that he would be killed, and second of all, that he would rise from the grave. His death and resurrection, those are the things that are found in all three of these foretellings. In the first, we hear of his condemnation. In the second, we hear of his betrayal, both of which would lead to his death. What is added to this third foretelling are the following, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. This is brand new. This is something he hasn't said before. Uh, This is the first time we've heard of the involvement of the Gentiles. And what Gentiles would this be? Well, it has to be the Romans. See, the Jews were allowed to have courts and to make decisions, but they could not announce or uh, say you are guilty, we are going to put you to death. They did not have the right of capital punishment. Only the Romans could do that. So when we're told that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles and be killed, okay, these are the Romans, okay? They will mock him and spit on him. This is something we haven't heard before. But it gives us a sense that it is adding to his humiliation. And then they will flog him. This adds to his pain and suffering. So here in this third telling of his coming passion, which at this point is less than a week away, Jesus says, listen, I'm going to be publicly humiliated and I'm going to be made to suffer. As though crucifixion itself was not bad enough, they will add to it. They will flog him. The question that came up to me as I was preparing this Is this a prediction? And you may notice that I've avoided using the word prediction, keep saying foretelling, um, or prophesying. I think in part because of the series that we did, we've done at several Christmas seasons, where we look at the difference between prophecy and prediction, between promise and prediction. That when in fact a promise is made about the coming Messiah, that's not the same thing as a prediction. It is a promise that will be fulfilled. Um, so is Jesus predicting that this is what's going to happen Uh, what's going on here we have instances in the gospels where Jesus is able to know things that humanly speaking he should not know that it is a type of supernatural if that's the right word knowledge so the woman at the well in John chapter 4 Jesus knows that she's been married five times and the man she's living with is not her husband Um, as we will see next Sunday Jesus sends the disciples into town and tells them there they will find a colt that is tied up that no one has ever ridden on Um, and if somebody says hey what are you doing what what are you doing with this colt they will say well the Lord has need of him earlier in his ministry uh, he tells Peter go over here and catch a fish and you'll find a gold coin in its mouth and use that to pay our tax Um, when it comes time for the last supper 
Jesus tells his disciples that they would find a man carrying a pitcher of water there to follow him and then say, the teacher says, or ask, where is the room where I may, in fact, celebrate the Passover with my disciples? And the man would show. How does Jesus know these things? Is this predictive? And I would say it isn't a prediction. It is a knowledge that he has by the Spirit. Um, And when Jesus foretells his coming passion, it isn't a prediction. It is, in fact, an announcement of what is going to happen to him. Okay, so Jesus tells the disciples these seven things that are going to happen to him. Let's leave the seventh off for resurrection. The other six are not good. Which makes the next verses that we read all the more astounding. He's told his disciples what's going to happen. He's told them twice before, and in case they didn't get it, he tells them now a third time. Every time he tells them, they don't get it. So the first time he tells them in chapter 8, verse 31, then verse 32, uh, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's like, that's not going to happen. You are not going to suffer. You're not going to be betrayed. You're not going to be put to death. And then in chapter 9, he tells them, and then afterwards the disciples get into an argument about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Now that he has given a complete, it is a seven-part prediction. It is announcement of his coming passion. It is astounding what happens after this. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Quite astounding. James and John are in fact part of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. They were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared and spoke, conversed with the Lord Jesus. And yet these men come with what can only be called a presumptuous request. Um, I keep thinking of an illustration to illustrate this, but you know how how kids will say, Mom or Dad, I want you to give me something. Promise me you're going to do something. They don't say what it is. They say, promise me you're going to do this. Or, you know, people have come to me and said, listen, I'm going to tell you something, but you have to promise me you're not going to tell anybody. I can't promise that because what if you say to me, I, I'm going to kill myself? Well, that's not something I'm going to keep to myself. And yet these disciples come to Jesus and they're like, they don't even say this is what we want. They're like, we want you to promise that you're going to do for us whatever we ask. It is, I think, in many ways, rather childish. So Jesus' response to the request is a question. 
what do you want me to do for you? Keep this in mind because it's going to come up again in our study today. Their request is, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Simply put, this is a request for power, prestige, and glory. They imagine Jesus being the king of Israel, sitting on his throne, and he's going to have a right-hand man and a left-hand man, and these are going to be his top assistants. These are going to be his top officials in the kingdom. They seem to be unaware that yeah, if Jesus, in fact, would give this to them, it would bring with them difficulties and obligations if this request was answered. Some have argued, by the way, and I, I would ask you to consider that perhaps, as presumptuous as this might seem, it was, there is some aspect of faith in it. They assumed, by faith, that Jesus would enter into his glory. So Jesus, when you ascend the throne, when you enter your glory... They believe that he would. Let one of us sit at your right and the other one at the left. Yeah. But their faith was really faulty because the way they saw things happening is not in fact what God had intended. So I'm not sure that I would call it faith, but weak or broken faith. Unless we criticize, I think we all have the same kind of faith. Jesus asked them if they can handle the positions what comes with them? Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Some have suggested that these are two sides of the same coin. That drinking the cup refers to Jesus' active obedience. He does, what he, he goes to the cross. But to be baptized refers to his passive obedience. He doesn't nail himself to the cross. He allows himself. He passively is obedient and allows himself to be put to death. To be baptized, I think, points to him being going underneath the waters of death, like being put in the ground. He is being baptized, but he will passively obey as he actively obeys in drinking the cup. Jesus has just spoken about his coming passion in which he would be actively and passively obedient. He would go willingly to the cross. He would allow himself to be crucified. So it's no stretch for this, these two expressions to refer to his suffering. I think that's clear. If these two guys had been listening, they might have made the connection. I mean, he's just told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be made to suffer more than one would suffer being crucified. And all they can say is, promise, promise you'll give us whatever we ask for. And when Jesus says, well, do you think you can handle it? We can. Having no idea what they're talking about. What the arrogance a little humility might have led them to say, what does this mean exactly, drinking from the cup? What does this mean being baptized? John the Baptist baptized us. What do you mean being baptized when the baptism you're going to be baptized? Wait, weren't you baptized by John as well? One would think a little humility might say, we don't understand what you're saying. But humility doesn't mark these two brothers. 
So Jesus tells them, yes, you know what? You will, in fact, drink from the cup. James was the first of the disciples to be martyred. He was beheaded by Herod. And John is said to have been martyred as well. But could it not also be that Jesus is telling them, yes, as my disciples, you will be actively obedient and you will be passively obedient. You will choose to do the right thing and in certain situations, you will just let things happen to you, but you will continue to be obedient to God. And then he tells them something amazing, particularly in the context of prayer. It is not for me to grant these positions. They belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In Matthew's account, he says, uh, those that have been prepared by my Father. Uh, This is fascinating, because in John we are told, Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you. And here he says, I can't do that. I, I cannot give you what you're asking for. Interesting. How did the others respond? Look at verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And for myself, I can't help but wonder if they're indignant because James and John beat them to it. They were going to ask for something quite similar, and James and John, the brothers, conspired together, and they got to Jesus ahead of the others. But rather than scolding them, Jesus instructs them. Verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Wait, haven't we heard something like this before? Yes, after the second announcement of his coming passion. Um, when they, they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet on, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, whoever wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. See, the disciples have been reading all the wrong books on leadership. They've got the wrong view of leadership. I think that James and John saw themselves as in being in positions of what they're asking for of high officials. They want to be at the, near the very top. And they would be able to exercise authority. They would get to boss people around. People would have to do what they said. For them, leadership means having authority. It means getting to tell people what to do just the way the Gentiles or the Romans were doing to them. Notice how Jesus puts it. Those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles. Um, Eugene Peterson has something called the message, which is a translation slash paraphrase. It's a very loose translation. And this is how he translates this. He says, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around. And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. In the common English Bible, you know that the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high-ranking officials order them around. Yeah, that's the way of the world. But in the kingdom of God, it is different 
things are quite different. Verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That is, must serve. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of whom? Of all. It's a fundamental truth. It's a fundamental reality, what it means to be a child of God, to be a part of the church, to be a part of the kingdom of God. If you want to be great, you serve. If you want to be first, you should be slave of all. And this goes all the way back to the nature of the Trinity, the triune God. By the way, today in the church calendar is Trinity Sunday. And we sang holy, holy, holy. We sing of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we find in them is love, this giving and receiving. Being the servant of all rather than being served, that means giving. Instead of taking and keeping, as is the way of the world. Being the very last rather than being the very first. In our world, it is people want to take and keep. They want to boss people around. They want authority so they can tell people what to do. By the way, I think they convince themselves this is for their good. I'm not doing it for me. I want to help the people have better lives. But in reality, as Jesus said, those who are regarded, scare quotes there, um, yeah, they just want power and they want authority. And that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. But Jesus continues. I didn't read verse 45 yet. Look at it. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I mentioned earlier, Jesus has spoken three times about his coming passion, that in fact, he will be killed. He will be flogged. He will be publicly humiliated, handed over to the Romans. But there's something that none of the three announcements have This is brand new. Jesus came into the world not to be served, but to serve. That's sort of counterintuitive. Um, We would think if God comes into the world, he'd want us to serve him. But no, he came to serve. We would not expect that he would come into the world to suffer and to die. But he does. And it has a purpose. See, up to this point, Jesus has been talking about him dying. He didn't say why. He didn't say what the purpose was behind it. It's not simply a death. It isn't simply martyrdom. It isn't, in fact, the end of a dream. We thought he was the one who would be the savior of Israel. No, it, in fact, has a purpose. It would, in fact, be for others. He would be a ransom this is an interesting word because for most of us today when we think of ransom at least I do I think of someone who's been kidnapped and the kidnappers demand a ransom that you have to give the money to get the person back Um, but in the Old Testament it is generally used for a slave if someone has sold himself into slavery that a relative can in fact ransom him out of slavery It can also be used for someone who's committed a crime. That uh, if someone's committed a crime, if they've committed a murder, that they can in fact be ransomed if they pay the family a certain amount. Um, 
then they don't have to be put to death. Redeem is a different word. Redeem, in fact, is used in terms of recovering ownership. That used to be mine, and now I am redeeming it. So if you think of a pawn shop, when you go to a pawn shop to get back your stuff, you say, I want to redeem whatever it is you pawn. You don't say, I want to ransom. Okay. The word that Jesus uses here is ransom. Um, it's like purchasing back a slave. Not redeeming, but ransoming. It is interesting that in English translations, they tend to use the words interchangeably, um, which I don't think is necessarily correct. First Peter 1, 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. In the English Standard Version, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The common English Bible uses a different word altogether. Live in this way knowing that you were not liberated by perishable things like silver or gold from the empty lifestyle you inherited from your ancestors. Instead, you were liberated by the precious blood of Christ like that of a flawless, spotless lamb. In either case, ransom or redeem, or in the case of the common English Bible, liberated, it is because of the death of Christ. It is because of his blood that is shed. But the disciples don't seem to get the message. They don't seem to get the message. Now we come to the last part of chapter 10. It's the story of blind Bartimaeus. Look, if you would, at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. Jericho, by the way, is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's lower, so they're going up to Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, and then Mark tells those of us who aren't Jewish, that is, son of Timaeus, Bar, son of, okay, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Things to note in this story. First of all, he's a blind man. He's sitting by the side of the road begging. Uh, This is a man who's blind. He can't work for a living. All he can do is beg. That's all he can do to keep himself alive. Hoping that the passersby would have pity on him. Uh, many of them perhaps are on their way to Jerusalem, up to the temple. And so if you, if you want to say, hey, I'm a good person, I gave money to this blind guy. So maybe this is a good spot to hang out and people will give you alms. Okay? 
On the other hand, there may be those who have pity for him, but they say, yeah, you know what? It's your own fault. You're blind because you did something wrong, sort of like Job and his comforters. But in John chapter 9, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So while some might give him alms, others might just shake their head and say, well, you must have done something really bad that you're blind. But when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming by, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No doubt, sitting on the edge, you know, by the side of the road, people go by. They say, if you, if you lose one sense, others are heightened. He's blind, so now he can hear, and he hears all these conversations. People have been talking about this guy up in Galilee, that he does amazing things. In fact, he's able to heal the blind and ret- return their sight. Here's his chance. So forget social convention. He shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's some debate as to whether or not Bartimaeus knew what he was saying. That is, is he saying, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. Um, The title, son of David, is not a messianic title as such. In the passage, the Lord willing, we'll look at next week, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So there is this sense of a connection between the Messiah and David being a son of David. I'm not sure that Bartimaeus got that. What I would focus on is what he says, have mercy on me. This is something we hear throughout the Psalms. People who are afflicted call out to God for mercy. Psalm 4.1, answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God, give me relief from my distress, be merciful to me and hear my prayer. In Psalm 6, verse 2, be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. Psalm 123, one of the songs of ascent. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. These all fit, that this is someone who wants to be healed and apparently has, I would say, suffered contempt. Oh, wonder what you did, that you're blind. You must have done something really bad. Um, He calls out to Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, to have mercy on him. There are seemingly two factions in the crowd that's following Jesus. Um, The first group, Tell him to shut up. Okay? This, this is inappropriate behavior. We have the teacher here. They may not even believe he was the Messiah, but he taught good things. They're following him up to Jerusalem. And suddenly, he's like he's being heckled from the side of the road by this guy who says, listen, have mercy on me. Like it's all about him. And so a group of them basically tell him to be quiet. But he refuses, which is a great sign of faith. He will not let them shut him down. So he keeps on shouting, and then there is a second group in the crowd who say, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. So not all of them, I think, had a dim view of Bartimaeus. Others seem to be on his side. 
So what does Bartimaeus do? Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. This is interesting because where Jericho is located, it rarely gets chilly. It's pretty warm all year round. So what is he doing with the cloak? It's supposition, but I would say that his cloak is something he puts in front of him where people could throw their money, throw their alms, um, so that he could survive, so that he could live. And he basically throws that aside. That's not going to be his life anymore. And he came to Jesus. And then Jesus asked him the very same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? I've said before a number of times that this this question almost seems somewhat silly. Of course he wants his sight back. But in preparing for this, I think perhaps we need to rethink this, or at least I should. The last time Jesus asked somebody, what do you want me to do for you? It didn't work out so well, did it? They went, we want to be on your right hand and your left hand when you come into your glory. So to ask somebody, what do you want, can be a really dangerous question. I mean, we're assuming, because we know how the story works out, that he's going to ask for his eyesight back. But he could have asked for other things as well. Also, I think it's because of the time in which we live, the notion of being a victim has become quite popular. So while we might think, what's a no-brainer? Of course, I want to see. Of course, that's what Bartimaeus is going to say. But it, in fact, might not have been the response given. Consider that if Jesus gives Bartimaeus his sight, he's going to have to get a job. He's going to have to work for a living now. He can no longer sit on the side of the road and whine and moan about his being blind. He can't expect to live off the pity of other people. Jesus wants Bartimaeus to recognize what it is he wants. What is it that you want? What do you want me to do for you? How do you want God's mercy to be revealed in your life? There's no more being a victim. You can't say, oh, poor me, I'm a blind man. I need help. Now, you know, if you get your eyesight back, your life's going to change radically. And while it might all seem wonderful, in fact, it's going to be more difficult in some ways. We live in a time in which people want to be victims. They want to play the victim card. I don't know that I've told this story, but some years ago, uh, I was in the Philippines working with the pastors uh, in Baguio, um, the theological education by extension. And uh, after one of the, the meetings, somebody came up to me and said, uh, yes, there's a couple, a married couple that wants marriage counseling. And they want you to counsel them. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I don't know them. I'm not their pastor. Uh, I rarely do counseling in my own congregation. I'm not going to do it. They came anyway. They traveled some distance. And so I was stuck. Or at least I felt I was. So they sat down and we asked, so what's the problem? And the problem, simply put, was that at some point right before they got married, the husband had lent money to someone without telling his prospective bride, um, and she was very hurt by it. The money was paid back, so no money was lost, but he had done something without asking her permission. 
Um, by the way, he had lent the money to one of his ex-girlfriends. That didn't help the situation. But the money was paid back, okay? So you know, we talked about this. He cried, which among mountain people never happens. You don't ever see a man crying. He's, he was very distraught about this. So we talked for a while, maybe about an hour. And then she said something, and it's like sort of a light went off in my head. And so I asked, when did this happen? And she said, oh, 12 years ago. The pastor who was with me almost fell out of his chair. I, I've kidded him about it many times since. Um, he, he was stunned. He was shocked. And what we came to realize is she'd been playing the victim card for 12 years. Anytime there was a disagreement, she'd like, remember what you did way back when, when you, did, when you lent money and you didn't ask me? And so she didn't want resolution. She wanted to be confirmed in her victimhood. I was a victim. Poor me. Um, and that is in the culture around us today. So we should not assume that automatically Bartimaeus would say, I want to see. Okay. I want to have my eyesight. Okay. So Jesus questioned him. It's not ridiculous. What do you want me to do for you? And then you'll notice how James, or I'm sorry, how Mark puts it. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. He's not Bartimaeus at this point. He's the blind man. The man who cannot see. And his request is, I want to see. Mark wants the reader to remember this with the request. And there it is. He said it out loud. Perhaps in his heart, in his mind, for years he said, I wish I could see. I wish I could see. I wish I weren't blind. And now he has to say it out loud. Jesus is like, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to see. And the result is, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. What are we to make of the statement, your faith has healed you? Like the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was demon-possessed, Bartimaeus does not have a sense of entitlement. Okay? He's not like James and John. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. We don't have that at all. Here's a man who speaks in faith. Like the woman who had the issue of bleeding, had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She does not act out of desperation. And Bartimaeus is crying out, I don't think is desperation. It is, in fact, an act of faith. I don't know if you notice it, though, but I think oftentimes we forget the end of the story because the story doesn't end with him receiving his sight, does it? That he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. In Luke's account, it says that he followed Jesus praising God. Bartimaeus has been healed. He has received what he asked for. He has received what he wanted. So now he gets to do whatever he wants. I can do whatever I want. Now I can see. I can go anywhere. I can go visit friends and go see the sights. No, 
He's received his sight, and now he wants to follow Jesus. In Psalm 50, we read, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Jesus has healed this man, and his response is, I want to follow Jesus. So what was it that he really wanted? Was it just to be able to see? I think it's much more than that. And we see it in the fact that he followed Jesus. So to here at the end of the sermon, let me ask you, what do you want God to do for you? It's a question that's asked twice in our passage today. And how would we answer it? Or how should we answer it? I think Jesus asking this question reveals the shallowness on the part of James and John, but also the depth that we find in Bartimaeus. Let's be honest. Have we ever asked or prayed presumptuously? And the answer is yes. Obviously we have. We are grateful that God answers our prayers in a way that is best for us. But in our praying, we need to examine, okay, what's going on here? Um, What am I asking for? Why am I asking for it? There's nothing wrong with asking. Jesus asks, and the man says, I want to see. There's nothing wrong with asking. But there are times when we need to say, okay, what's going on here? What What is my... What's driving me here? What is my motivation? Why am I asking for this? I mean, with James and John, they may not have seen it. Uh, They might have said, we want to be at your right and left so we can serve you. Eh, Come on. They wanted to be at the top of the food chain. They wanted to be right next to Jesus. And our prayers must be done thoughtfully. Let's be honest, sometimes we pray, we pray thoughtlessly. Sometimes we pray presumptuously. Sometimes we think we know what we need. Um, most of the time, I think we're convinced that we're right. But we need to hear the question of Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? And ask ourselves, are we going to be James and John? Are we going to be Bartimaeus? Are we going to recognize that we are poor in spirit? And say, have mercy on me? Why don't James and John say, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Have mercy on us. (laughs) Doesn't even come up. But God is merciful, in fact as we sang in our first hymn, merciful and mighty. Um, May we learn from these two incidents um, what it means to ask and to recognize, in fact, that God is in control, that he loves us, and he will always do what's best for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for how patient you are with us. That far too often we are like James and John. And we get angry when we don't get what we ask for. 
failing to recognize that, yeah, that's not what you want for us. That's not what's best for us. You know what is best. And far too often, we are ignorant of our need of mercy. I thank you for blind Bartimaeus who called out in faith, have mercy on me. I thank you for your mercy, for your grace, and for your love. By your spirit, may we think on these things in the days to come, particularly as we pray. I thank you for the freedom to pray and to ask. I thank you that in many ways you have answered our prayers. In many cases, you've answered them before we prayed. You've given us answers that we've not asked for. But may we be more thoughtful in our praying, humble in our praying, and look to you in faith. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.